Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. It's season 17 of Below the Line, and for the first time ever, we're releasing two episodes on the same day. In the spirit of Barbenheimer, we're calling it Turtle Trek. And this episode is about Star Trek Strange New Worlds, the prequel series that just last week aired the penultimate episode of its second season on Paramount+. Plus. You can listen to these two releases in whatever order you want, but if you want to learn more about Star Trek's first ever musical episode, stay with us here. My guest is cinematographer Benji Bakshi. Benji, welcome to Below the Line. Thanks, kid. Pleasure to be here. Glad to have you as well, Benji. Excited to talk about this show. A warning for listeners, today's conversation will contain spoilers. But before we get to any, let's talk about the challenge of filming a prequel to the original Star Trek. Well, we've got a prequel series shooting 57 years after the original. So you can imagine what's changed. And the, <laughs> the main thing is the sensibility of the audience. Myself, I grew up watching reruns of Next Generation because that's just what was airing. And then I grew into watching some of the original series because I was able to see through some of what I saw as a dated aesthetic and style. And when I was able to see through that, the story and the philosophy really grabbed me. So I think that's always what's happening in every generation of viewers. And this, the series are there to meet the audience where they are. So now we have an audience that's attuned to a serialized approach and expects very cinematic, almost mini movies in every episode. But this series, in order to dovetail into the already existing lineage, goes for an episode of the week approach. Also injected in there is a lot of humor and a lot of, you know, higher paced narrative. So the approach there is to keep the show fun. Something that we talk about uh, is other Star Trek shows recently, they're darker, they're more dramatic and heavier. And our show has white walls, in some ways, light everywhere. As a cinematographer, that's, you know, something I strive to uh, fight against is to create shadow and texture. But overall, the tone of what we're trying to do is keep it energetic, fun and exciting, and not a requirement for the audience to have seen prior episodes. Talk to me more about the specifics around the style and tone and how you are threading this needle and how that's in service of the show overall. When I first started the show, I started in season two. So they had established a little bit of their voice. There was big discussions and also they published a document that really encapsulated the intention of the voice of the show. And they call it Lawrence of Arabia in space. So the instincts of what you might call traditional filmmaking are really, I think, present in this show. We certainly have high energy we certainly utilize some of the cutting edge tools to keep it entertaining, but the instincts of the storytelling, even down to the writing, are kind of a throwback. So we use very large cameras, anamorphic lenses in a large format capture, and 
this makes using a close-up a very different approach than um, shooting in a different way. Uh, we really take care with those. We similarly set up our wide shots in a way that tells the story in this sort of traditional style. So we feel like we're shooting it on film, even though we're not, because it's a very VFX heavy show. I think there might be a chance that if it wasn't so VFX heavy, we would. But that's the approach of the show to try to honor some of the nostalgia without it feeling old. Now, does it slow your shooting day down? Benji, how much time are they giving you per episode on these? Our production schedules are typically 12 days per episode. We may end up with some spillover that can be accomplished in different ways for different reasons. Uh, my understanding is the season premiere and finale may have longer schedules than that. And when I started in TV, we had basically seven days and we would sometimes have, or usually have what's called a tandem day where you're shooting at the same time as the next episode. And that would be called the eighth day. We're almost doubling that for um, the same screen time relatively. So with that comes an increase in quality. I say quality, not from a technical standpoint, though that probably exists too, but mainly it's from a creative and instinctual standpoint, accomplishing things that may be more difficult or giving dramatic scenes more time. And having started my career in features and going through that process for many years, I feel like there's a direct translation from amount of set time to creative result. And I used to champion the idea that all you really need is the right filmmakers in the right location with the right actors and everything else can just build around it. And I think that's true that you see successful independent films with those ingredients and they succeed, but maybe the scope doesn't feel as big as higher budget projects. So I think that it does hold true. And my cinematography mentor, Chris Manley, uh, who shot many seasons of Mad Men, among other things, sort of had this motto, as the budgets get bigger, your shots get wider. <laughs> Benji, what was it about Star Trek that made you want to be a part of this show? One of the joys of the format of this series is the episode of the week nature in that every episode is essentially its own genre and as a cinematographer sometimes the challenge of television is the struggle of uh, maintaining the creative instinct amidst what could be repetition so the variety of genre was such an important thing for me and one of the reasons that i felt uh, this show would be a good fit the producing director, Chris Fisher, and the season one and pilot cinematographer, who also I worked with and collaborated on season two, his name is Glenn Keenan. Um, we had a really in-depth discussion before we all sort of decided that uh, we should collaborate. And they noticed a lot of variety in my work from doing feature films. You know, in general, a feature is a, is a contained story and uh, has an ending and uh, does its own thing, has its own voice, and is is unique. So I loved that 
sensibility. Those are my instincts. And I was assured that that is exactly what they're looking for in each of these episodes was to be able to have them stand alone. So that's a really amazing thing to do in television. And one of my favorite aspects of the show is be, being able to make them different. We also use the term, the ship, you know, the sets within uh, the show are the mood board of each episode. And we have virtually complete freedom to use our own personal instincts and change the lighting and change how we shoot it as long as we're not breaking a logic to it like the function of the transporter room or why does the bridge look like you know a carnival or things like that we're not going to go that far but i've absolutely lit the bridge completely differently between episodes and things like that and it's not to um keep myself entertained it's really to say as I uh, mentioned earlier, the Lawrence of Arabia in space, traditional filmmaking, nostalgic approach of let's honor these characters and try to tell the story as simply as possible. We get to really lean into those instincts. And I think the result is improved. Well, Benji, in season two, you were the cinematographer on episodes two, four, six, and nine. Let's talk about each of these to go a little more detail into the genre you were trying to evoke. Episode two was Ad Astra Paraspera, and it was the trial episode. I want to start off talking about this episode in the context of collaborating with the director, because the director was Valerie Weiss, and this was our third show collaborating together. And I've only done three TV shows. Every single show, we've done an episode together. And we first met on The Rookie and realized having never met prior that we grew up outside of Philadelphia in a very similar region in a very similar way. Uh, and we really developed um, a great creative bond. So when I joined season two of Star Trek, they were still looking for directors and they asked me, who would you recommend? And my immediate response was Valerie. And she met with the showrunners and a lot of the producers and they thought she was a great fit. So there we were, uh, both me and Valerie, side by side on our first mutual Star Trek episode ever. So it was a really great onboarding, and we were in a comfort zone to support each other. At the same time, we were both learning similar things. So the episode was really great for me to start my um, Star Trek career, if you will, because it was a very character-driven episode not very action-oriented, as can be the case. They were uh, orbiting outside Earth, a very familiar territory, right? So there weren't the strange new worlds that many episodes <laughs> bring. Right. That said, it was a really beautiful episode in what it was trying to say. So our job was to sort of rely on those instincts and try to ignore the futurism around us and just focus on the characters. It was a very dialogue heavy episode and a lot of what I would call, you know, sitting in the courtroom and things like that. So how do we make it interesting? And Valerie and I had done this since our first show together that we break down the story into rules. One of the things about 
filmmaking in general is, or maybe creativity in general, is that you need constraints. At least I feel you need constraints in order to have a creative approach. This can be the challenge in starting with a blank canvas in an empty studio or a green screen or things like that, which is why traditionally is very frustrating for people. When you go on location and shoot, the locations naturally give you something to work around. So similarly, you want an approach. And we spend a lot of time in the sets that we were shooting, you know, sort of scratching our heads and figuring out what are these sets telling us about the story that we're telling. And one of the approaches, for example, we had with Rebecca Romaine, who was playing the uh, Una number one character that the episode really centers around is what is her story in this episode? What is her a journey, if you will? It's really about becoming free. There's a spoiler here. At the end of the episode, she reveals that she was the one who turned herself in for this, as we say, crime of being genetically modified, which happened to be her species tradition. So one of the approaches we had was we wanted Una to feel imprisoned visually. We wanted to put things in front of her or not show her full body unless there were other things obstructing it. In one moment, she's talking with uh, Nira, her legal counsel and friend, who has sort of derailed her trial and put her in the worst position. Nira leaves the room and Rebecca is left alone for a moment and then the door slams and there's a tiny sliver of a window just over her eyes. And that was our visual statement of saying, this is what she's feeling. And when we uh, filmed her in the trial, she's sitting behind a desk. There's a glass railing and things in front of her. And we try to shoot through those elements and, and create obstruction until she finally stands up and takes the stand and she's fully exposed. And that's when she reveals all. So things like that were really exciting for us because it was such a uh, interwoven character episode and also uh, the first chance for us to flex our muscles. Surprisingly and, you know, thankfully the audience responded really well to it. Courtroom episodes tend to, you know, do really well in Star Trek because the philosophy is such a big part of the series. And some people were saying it was one of the best episodes of, of the century, if not ever. So that was really rewarding. Next, Benji, let's talk about episode four, Among the Lotus Eaters. We return to Rigel 7 and the medieval society on that planet. Episode four, I collaborated with director Eduardo Sanchez, who is famous for directing the Blair Witch Project, uh, among other things. This episode was much more of a thriller, kind of like a psycho thriller. And we do return to this world called Rigel 7, which was famously set up in the pilot episode of the original series. And so this has been a mindfuck for Captain Pike, you know, ever since. And uh, in some ways, this is a big catharsis for the audience because it hasn't really been addressed in the same way for all these decades. So to return to it was a really cool idea, and we had the pressure of doing it justice. So in the concept, aesthetically, of creating this world, 
there was a lot of homage to the original artwork of Rigel Seven with this magenta sky and these sort of bombastic, oppressive kind of castle. And also from a writing standpoint, justifying a really fun and uh, high stakes return to medieval times that because they've contaminated the society with leftover tech because they had to evacuate in a hurry, they're making sure they don't make the same mistake and they also want to blend in. So they return with without any of their weapons or usual tech. So they've got old telescopes and things like that. So it's a great costume party in, <laughs> in that respect. But also you're thinking, how are they going to achieve this? Because usually Star Trek relies on its tech in order to uh, to pull off their, their goals. So that was the place to begin our conception of how we're going to capture this. Episode four relies heavily on the volume or AR wall, which is the 3D surrounding environment. We had four distinct sets shooting on the AR wall. And this was the first time that I had really leaned heavily into it. And also the first time I believe Eduardo had shot on the volume like this. There's a little bit of a learning curve there, but it was really fun. And that's where I realized that shooting on the volume was to me just a blast. It was really like we were there. We were in the snowy environment and I didn't have to wear a parka. <laughs> <laughs> and utilizing the wall was incredible for me as a cinematographer because not only is the wall providing a, a beautiful background that's interactive in a 3D sense with the camera, where you move the camera, the background actually shifts with parallax and layers. It's, it's not just a flat backdrop that you're shooting. It's not just a matte painting. But also you can utilize the wall to create lighting itself by putting shapes and maxing out the brightness of the LED diodes themselves. So this was a really fun, new, exciting tool for me because what using hardware might have taken us, you know, a long time to do, we could integrate into the actual LED walls. We still use lights on the ground. And anyone who thinks that that will completely go away one day, I think is incorrect because there's just a reality to lighting ratios that make cinematography what it is. And sometimes lights physically need to be close and there's really not much you can do about it. So we're always doing that, but to accentuate the world using the LED tools is really incredible. So the approach with the story on episode four was there's a ringing in people's ears and they develop a sort of tinnitus headache and all of a sudden time is lost. And I think it was a really ingenious success on the writing because they wrote the lack of time. They wrote the moment the ringing happened and then the moment the ringing stopped and they snapped out of it. And as the audience, you felt the lack of time, which was successful in films like Memento. So when you have such a big mystery, you know, the tension is higher and the mystery really, you know, 
is seemingly unsolvable to the point where the characters don't know who they are, don't know why they're there and, you know, don't know what to do. So they have to rely on the deeper instincts of their character. It was a really fun exercise in that. So we had a, a technique where we would sort of float past the character and do a focus pull and things like that to signify these memory loss moments. And I think it's always great to use the camera to say things. Obviously, the sound design was a big support in that, but we were able to make it experiential for the audience. And I think that was really successful. I'd also like to know about the camera techniques you used for the next episode, episode six, Lost in Translation, where Uhura is having these hallucinations. And uh, well, there's a lot going on here. Talk to me about the cinematic approach. Episode six was directed by uh, Dan Liu, who came from an editing background, um, most notably on uh, The Walking Dead. And um, he has a great sense of what pieces he needs to make a sequence work. Strange New Worlds succeeds when told in a sequence. There are definitely dialogue scenes that need to be covered, if you will. But for the most part, we try not to get shots of people for the whole scene and say we're done. We really want to build a direction in how we present things. So Dan did a great job of that, considering this episode was essentially horror. But he really conceived and was the leader in building the plan for portraying these hallucination sequences. In one of them, the walls are closing in on her. In one of them, she sees essentially a zombie of her past friend, Hemmer, from season one, in the elevator or turbo lift and all these things, you know, happening in front of her. And in one particularly complex hallucination, she's sitting in her quarters, the lights turn red, signifying a red alert. So she walks to the bridge where the captain says, we're being attacked. We pan over in one shot and the view screen is cracking. And then we sort of go over to Spock and you see wind pull him and yank him and throw him into space. And everyone is just ripped into space. And we were connecting all these moments. I think there was two shots in that whole sequence. And so it was very intricate coordination with stunts and things where Spock fell out of camera. And then a stunt person who was attached to a wire then flew into camera and oh, wow. the camera operator was essentially hovering over a stunt mat that Ethan Peck who plays Spock could fall on and sort of like wipe the camera as he panned but you know as we rehearsed it don't pan too fast because we actually don't want to feel like a whip pan we don't want to hide anything because all this stuff is actually happening in front of us so really I want to give credit to Dan Liu the director who was a mastermind in how to achieve all that and it was a pleasure working with him. That said, he and I really dissected the script in terms of the buildup, or maybe we should even say tear down, of the ship itself, the state that everyone was in, and the mayhem that was happening around them. Namely, things culminate with a saboteur of this fuel station coming aboard the ship, not knowing who he is, attacking everybody, trying to blow it up. And 
power being disengaged. So you have this decline and descent into dark hallways, a murderer on the loose, you know, we're running out of fuel and everything's going wrong. So there were actually moments in that episode that we originally, when we read the script, felt weren't visually low enough. And we, um, you know, had discussions with the writers. Is there a way we can get to a low power mode? And we were able to sort of influence some of the uh, mechanics of the plot in, in the sense of justifying the deeper descent. Dan and I broke the script down into a few sections. The, you know, happy act one sort of setup. And then as things broke down, we went into more dim lighting because they were trying to conserve fuel because they were there at a fuel station. And then as things got crazier, we went to this low power mode and we did some things that we had never done before on this show. And we made that section completely underlit meaning lighting was coming from below. So there are sort of footlights around all the sets, but they had, I think, been intended for accent, but I was trying to actually utilize them for the illumination of the sets themselves. So we were really riding at the edge of our lenses were wide open, meaning we had to let as much light in as possible, or we were accentuating lights around the floor trying to give this underlit look. And that was successful in other sci-fi, such as Empire Strikes Back. It was a very underlit kind of movie. And I, I believe it helps add a sense of dread because things are a little bit unnatural. Usually in television, the directors come and go episode to episode, and it's the crew that maintains the look and tone of the show. With each of these episodes, you've noted how the collaboration with the director had a big influence on the cinematography. I'm curious to hear how that also applied to episode nine, Subspace Rhapsody, which is notable as the first ever Star Trek musical episode. Well, you're absolutely right that television has this sort of revolving door approach to working with directors, which is different from working with features where it's, it's usually one single voice. In episode nine, the musical, the director was Dermot Downs, who comes from a cinematography background and I could say was sort of a hero of mine as he was um, breaking new ground with the look of CSI and things like that in the days when television was under more constraints. So with that said, also Dermot and I crossed paths but didn't collaborate on a show called Prodigal Son. He did an episode you know, that didn't coincide with my rhythm, so we didn't work together, but we had been in the same sphere for a while. So it was really uh, exciting to see that we were going to work together on this one. And it was definitely going to be a special one. In fact, when we started talking, Dermot mentioned that he thought it was really fun that I had shot all the movies by a filmmaker named Craig Zoller, who did movies like Bone Tomahawk and Brawl and Cell Block 99. And he had seen those and thought they were a real hoot. So he thought it was uh, you know, really exciting that we were going to pair up on this. So Dermot, as you know, with the mind of a cinematographer, and he also did a lot of work on shows like Doom Patrol, things like that. He came in with a very strong plan 
to the tune of it basically being a, a shot list early on because this musical episode is not just call it a music video it's a plot driven episode like any other star trek would but singing and dancing is the sort of scientific phenomenon of the episode so there's a lot of discussion about well should we bring in five cameras and really shoot the heck out of all these dance numbers and singing numbers and things like that and immediately the group consensus and when i say group i mean the writers the showrunners akiva goldsman and henry alonzo myers producing director chris fisher the consensus was no these are not music videos these are scenes that involve singing and sometimes on the show you need to use two or even three cameras at the same time for various reasons and we found ourselves using one camera more than we ever had ironically even though these were singing and dance numbers the specificity of pulling off as i mentioned in other episodes a sequence i think was really successful in this episode and a lot of credit to dermot for his vision and understanding once again which moments he really needed but the approach was each of these songs are extrapolated emotion and how do we honor the feeling of that in one of the songs laan who's played by christina chong she's longing for the character of uh, kirk who has yet to be captain who she fell in love with in episode 3 in an alternate timeline and is now experiencing him again in this timeline and she basically fell in love with him but he doesn't really know that so we've got this interplay so she sings about it and she walks into her quarters and is looking at herself in the mirror and sort of like divulging her inner heart and has a flashback to them in a bedroom what could be but isn't and we really made the lighting expressive of the mood of each song so hers in that song was very moody light streaming through windows the next song was kirk and uh una number 1 having a waltz down the hallways this was much more high key we have little pin spot lights in the top of these hallways that serve as sort of accents or just feel very futuristic and we timed a cue where they sort of got a little brighter almost like little spotlights on them so that feeling had a lot more energy and uh Dermot and I worked on some choreography with the camera and uh Matt Cree who did the steady cam for that dance number was following them all the way down the hallway you know many times uh building up a little bit of sweat and so we tried to really capture the flow of that and then you have numbers like Spock singing in the engineering set to Uhura about his sort of depression over his relationship with the nurse chapel essentially ending we worked with the light levels in engineering to become a little darker than normal and he walks over to the edge 
of this railing and is standing there all alone. It's darker, it's shadowy. He walks over to a pillar and puts his hand on the pillar and finds some dramatic light and things like that. So we really wanted these to capture the the mood. And in the next song with Uhura, who's looking for the answer to all of this, there's very distinct cues in the song that sort of burst into bigger energy. And we literally just cued the engineering set to, you know, get brighter at those moments. And so in some ways, what she's calling for emotionally, the ship is reacting to. There was a limit to how far we pushed all that. At one point, we talked about spotlights shining down on her Chicago style or something like that. And we all just agreed that in the context of these remaining scenes, which in my opinion is the beauty of why this musical episode, I think, works well and maybe works differently than others is there's really a justification for it. We didn't want to break the logic of how things actually work. You know, like I don't think the ship would create lighting that we've never seen. We're just playing with the levels that already exist. You know, Benji, it struck me in watching this and tell me if this is an accurate observation or not, but even outside the musical numbers, I felt like I noticed an increase in camera movement that even the scenes where people weren't singing helped tie together the musical numbers. Is that true? That opening scene on the bridge, I just felt like there was swooping type camera movements that I don't normally see on the show. You're right. In some ways, the entire episode was choreographed, even though there's not singing and dancing. And that was the feel of this episode. It was the way it was written, that the scenes between songs, if you will, uh, or it's almost like the songs are scenes between other scenes, they do all need to flow together. There were scenes where there's exposition divulged and logic explained to the audience and things like that. But we wanted them to feel like the energy didn't really stop. And the headspace that all the characters were in continued, whether they were singing or whether they weren't. In one transition out of a musical number, Captain Pike just says, well, that happened. <laughs> and then they get into discussing what it all means. But the point is, they're aware that it's happening. It's it's. It could be surprising when the songs kick in. In another um, instance, Una, played by Rebecca Romaine, is talking to La'an about her emotions for Kirk. And they hear the music start and she just looks up at the ceiling like, well, here we go. <laughs> so the interplay between the knowledge of a song happening as a phenomenon, I've never seen before. And we definitely had a lot of fun with it, but you're absolutely right that the camera work was attempting to carry on the energy, even though there wasn't rhythm. Would it also be true, Benji, on set that, again, knowing that a lot of these songs are going to be re-recorded in post with the actors, does it simplify at all camera movements where you're not maybe as focused on our sound partners as you might normally be and what they need to get on set? The songs... You know, they were a little more free in that regard. And we were thinking entirely visually, because even from a performance standpoint, you don't have to worry about people flubbing lines. That said, 
And interestingly, with the concept of this musical, these are words expressed as scene dialogue, even if they're predetermined and re-recorded. So the expressions and the performances were, were things that we would hone and keep shooting to refine, just like any other scene. So it was just a really interesting experience for everybody. I think it's a lot of work to capture the, one might say, whimsical tone of in injecting these musical elements into the plot. Was it also fun to do on set or was this more stress trying to tackle this challenge? It was both. It was a lot of fun with pressure. There were times when the pressure overtook the fun. There were times when the fun overtook the pressure. <laughs> and I think that is, if not the one of the biggest reasons I ever wanted to be in this business was because the live nature of the creative process is infectious and unique every time you do it. And every single person involved gets their input into the end result. We have a really terrific crew who a lot of which have worked on other Star Trek shows and many are lifelong Star Trek fans and are just absolutely thrilled to be there. And they understand exactly what's being portrayed in these scenes. They understand the connections to other series and where the characters have grown from and what it all means. And we all get to really watch what we're doing on set as an audience and judge it appropriately. I feel like that is why the show has been successful in resonating with Star Trek audiences and uh, branching out in finding a new audience as well. When you're watching some of your favorite characters burst out into song and you're doing special shots featuring them, and then it's, okay, great, now on to the next one. Now you're going to come over here and hold his hand and jump into the air. It's, okay, are we ready for, you know, we have to get it all done. But what you're doing, especially when you're, you know, get to the point of rolling camera and getting the take, it's a big hoot. And everybody's laughing and sort of high-fiving behind the scenes. And that's the magic of it. But certainly, time is never your friend on a film set. And I'm sure you know that as much as anybody. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I know audiences are talking about this episode nine as well. Next week is the season two finale. And we're not going to say anything about that. But beyond this series and this season... Benji, what can you tell us about the future of Star Trek, the franchise? Well, I was in Toronto prepping season three. And we got it to the point of being pretty much ready to shoot and we didn't shoot. So we're on hold waiting for the word to uh, return and get it done. The time it takes from shooting to actual airing it's roughly a year, which is on the longer side. And when we were shooting season two, we got to about halfway through shooting the season before season one ever aired. So we had no 
validation that what we were doing was even working. And it turned out that uh, the audience loved it. So all of a sudden we thought, well, we're not going to do anything differently, but boy, it's a good thing that our instincts are, are working. So let's keep going with them. And that's exactly what's happening between season two and three is that we didn't get a chance to shoot any of season three until after season two aired. And season two was so uh, different than season one in the sense of pushing the boundaries and going for some of these more obscure concepts. And we didn't know what the audience would think. We didn't know if we were going to break Star Trek by uh, doing things that had never been done, like the musical, or uh, making each episode so um, distinct. But it turns out that, once again, the audience was really into it. We've been getting really great response. So what I can say about season three is that we're going to keep pushing the boundaries and keep using those same instincts. And also a sort of validating factor is that Star Trek Picard and Discovery, the two other live action Star Trek shows, are coming to an end, leaving Strange New Worlds as the only live action Star Trek show on the air at the moment. So that shows that we um, are what Paramount is putting all their energy into. And we think that's a result of uh, how well it's doing with the audience. So hopefully um, everyone keeps uh, going along for the ride, season three. I'm along for the ride. I wish you luck with this show, Benji, and uh, good luck. Uh, Obviously, we're hoping everybody gets back to work soon, but then we'll uh, see more of this on the other side. On that note, we're going to call it a wrap. Benji, great having you here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info on our website, belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. You'll also find past episodes and links to all of our social media, so check it out. Closing credits, thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and to all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. As I mentioned at the start of the show, Below the Line released two new episodes today. You too can join us for Turtle Trek. And if you listen to this episode first, please also check out my conversation with a couple of the animators behind Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, which just opened in theaters this week. Thanks again from Below the Line. Now, how rare is that to use the large cameras in modern filming? I think a lot of people are using large format capture. It's one of the recent advances. There was a time, especially during the film to digital transition, where resolution was an issue. Also, image latitude, exposure latitude, was something that was in the process of being developed for 10, 20 years. And now is at the point where latitude, exposure latitude, is so wide, meaning you can capture detail in the shadows and detail in the highlights, that it feels like it's a choice of how much latitude you even want. I think some filmmakers may reduce that latitude to give more contrast and things like that. So the large format capture is another advance that gives the feeling of, I'm just going to use a silly word, bigness. Okay. Using a physically bigger right. lens to give the field of view of what would have been a smaller lens on smaller digital capture or even a 35 millimeter size. And there's an optical phenomenon to that that isn't replicable another way. So 
the move to large format, and we're taking it even further. And we may be one of the fewer shows that's combining large format capture with anamorphic capture, which basically stretches the image horizontally and gives you that cinematic wide frame. So we're using sort of doubling down on the image size to go for that, you know, nostalgic cinematic feel.